Thank you for downloading this Brum Radio podcast. For more podcasts, visit brumradio.com. Welcome to Tall Tales, a place for storytelling and spoken word here on Brum Radio. I'm Philip Ellis, and each week I'll be bringing you a brand new short story. Some will make you laugh, others will leave you sleeping with the lights on, and all are by talented writers from Birmingham and the West Midlands. This week we're heading out to sea to join a rather pious group on their journey to the Promised Land. This is The Mayflower Diaries by Nick Whittle. From the Journal of William Bradford, Mayflower, 5th August, 1620. We left as happy brethren from Southampton in two boats, namely the Mayflower and the Speedwell, both pulling at their sails and eager to make the weighty voyage. I was in command of the Mayflower. We lifted up our eyes to the heavens, each of us a pilgrim, with the exception of the strangers, and prayed to Almighty God that we might find new land on which to walk without persecution, and at the same time haul some serious dough. Having left the port, we enjoyed fair winds and weather, but at Bewley, eight miles from Southampton, it was apparent that the belongings of many of the men and women on board the Speedwell had been left on the hard. So, with the patience he taught us, I ordered that we did bear back to port to enable them to collect their things. Once all our brothers and sisters were back on board, we blessed the God of heaven and again set ourselves for the promised land. Yet several leagues from shore, a young woman on the speedwell began to labor forth a child, forcing all of God's servants to once more return to the dock at Southampton. After we waited anxiously, we were informed by the woman's husband that they would stay on English soil to enact the good will of the woman's mother in rearing the child a Catholic. This decision received a general round of booing, and we soon set sail once more for the open sea of the English Channel. Nearing the spires of rock hitherto known as the Needles, we once more heard from the Speedwell that she was wet down below. That God may forgive our reckless nature, there was universal agreement that if we return to port one more time, the whole thing may as well be canned. Thus, we concocted a cunning plan, which involved sailing both ships side by side, while those brethren on the speedwell jumped over to the deck of the Mayflower. This we managed in a timely fashion, and with God's providence, only a handful of souls were lost to the sea, mostly strangers, praise the Lord. Although a credible feast celebrating our work was enjoyed, it was now apparent that we were faced with the unhappy prospect of two months upon a ship built for fifty, now holding one hundred, and already the privy was blocked. Mayflower, 
September 1620. At the beginning of the month, with the blessed help of the great king over all the earth, we were a whole 103 nautical miles from England and only 3,059 miles off the coast of the promised land. Such progress warranted a credible feast in his honour, and that it should please him on high, it was agreed that all present should have extra helpings of pork. The next day I was informed by my second-in-command, Christopher Jones, that our supply of red meat was fast disappearing from the hold, Lord save us, and by the middle of the month we would be utterly bereft of hog. Faced with two long months of eating chickens and dried beef, the decision was made to find alternatives. At last, begat by the everlasting light, William Barnaby, a fit and muscular young deckhand from Lymington, was selected to come upon the top deck in the dead of night for special duties. He did approach me in blissful ignorance, and his hand I shook. Then I bid him hold his breath for as long as possible, until, with God's help, he passed out. His gracious plan was then to command his servants, guts and fillet the boy, but just then did we receive news, praise be to God, that one more pig had been found below decks, sending a ripple of mixed emotion about the crew. When the passengers heard about the lack of supplies, it was considered that the famine was somehow due to a curse, and that the pilgrims must in some way have angered God, and that he did take our supplies for his own benefit. The brethren felt uneasy, especially those with previous cause for concern. There began rumours of hauntings on board, of a ghostly apparition with the head of a priest and the body of a priest, though not the same priest, and of a sea monster shaped like a house brick from whence singing could be heard, and shipping forecasts. Panic began to sweep the ship, especially when someone said they heard cloven hoofs trotting around the deck at night. This was quickly denounced as implausible by Christopher Jones, who remarked that with God's providence only the chickens looked after the above decks at night. To top it all off, one John Howland went overboard, but miraculously survived, though he was somewhat ill with it, and gurgled ever after. Unseen hands had thrown him overboard only after a card game, when the unseen hands lost a fistful of ackers. Mr. Howland did hold on for dear life, and in doing so successfully distracted all those brethren who previously were so bereft of their rational emotion. I will fondly recall in later life how Mr. Howland was grateful to me for not giving up hope and throwing his luggage overboard. Second September, 1620. Oh, the wreckful siege of battering days. I awoke to vicious tailwinds, saints preserve us, howling through the ship like poor Emma Somerset when she swaddles her bunions. I was certain the fierce storm with gusts so vicious would at any moment tear the poor Mayflower apart and leave her thoroughly befouled with her lower workings made very leaky. Then, Lord help us, just before two by the ship's clock, 
A hole developed in the hull, and a great fear rose among crew and passengers that for the first time since leaving England, luncheon would be cancelled. But the hole was quickly breached by my second-in-command, Jack Stevenson, God rest his soul, who in the spirit and doctrine of the godly, untied his breeches and plunged his ample derriere within the opening to prevent further ingress of water. Yet even in spite of his heroism, the winds did blow strong enough to cause those most lacking of faith to believe that the ship might not be able to perform the voyage, and that in any event we should turn around rather than continue into the peril of storms. Even among the seasoned mariners of the crew, some dissent was apparent after a saucepan begat from another part of the ship hit helmsman John Carpenter upon his temple, and while it was supposed that the saucepan was thrown by the gracious king of Israel himself, Mr. Carpenter pointed out that this was not in the normal way of God. Yet truly there builded a great distraction amid all brethren, saints and strangers alike, and it did gather momentum as it made the rounds, stirred by mutterings that had previously been mute, such that the sea had been far noisier than expected, and that very few of the rooms below decks had a sea view. Then, as I had done much before, as a poor servant of God, I prayed to him for his help and guidance, and soon got word that the simplest way to solve matters of rebellion was by the laying out of a credible feast. While I considered that the credible feast idea had run its course, it seemed like a good idea at the time. Thus afterwards, when the brethren retired joyful to their quarters, the crew and I did sit for a while much calmer, and we did play a game. The game we played was the one where a piece of paper would be placed upon our forehead, on which would be written the name of a person of note, the name yet unknown to he who wore the paper, was thus to be guessed by the beholder. The game greatly entertained, yet I discovered the name upon my head was written Abimelech, the Israelite who murdered all but one of his brothers. After such a discovery, I retired to bed miserable, but in hope that with a new dawn, begat by the gracious cornerstone, one would come upon much improved tempers, or at the very least a break in the weather. New England, November 1620. We espied land on the 9th of November, and the appearance of it comforted us. God willing, Mayflower was but one day before her glorious destination, and as normal, her public areas were closed for cleaning and preparation for the next lot of passengers on the home run. Being this close to our proper element caused much celebration and a spontaneous recital of Psalm 100 by first mate Robert Coppin, who up until then had been poorly of mind and was beholden to the suspicion that his wife was having an affair with the ship's compass. Assured of a goodly distance from any native settlements, we were merry and joyful in these first sightings, despite our hunger and thirst, and knew not of what was about to befall God's servants. The next day, around lunchtime, with us pilgrims only three leagues from the shore, I called upon two of the abler men, Miles Standish and Christopher Jones, and bade them row five miles to the land to bring back news. Though they did make ready the small boat, they were greatly discontented with such an endeavour, and, as they rowed away, 
shouted to me the coarsest of insults, including the many ways I might violate myself with a potato. A short time after the graceful lord had delivered the men to the land yonder, did Miss Maddox of Dagenham say that she thought she heard the fair sound of whooping and chanting, and sure enough we did then see many smoke-rings rising up into the sky, as if in part a sign of a credible feast. My fear that the two men had met much trouble from native peoples was confirmed later that day, when they made their return to the ship, minced and wrapped in green corn-leaves. How unsearchable are his judgments! Three days later, after such pity and sadness had been felt for the poor men's condition, the ship's helmsman, John Carpenter, did quickly turn his map around the right way, and sailed us at last to the harbour of Plymouth, though his eyes did dart from side to side as he did so. Being thus arrived in a good harbour, and brought safe to land, some fell upon their knees and blessed the God of heaven, while others, having lost some faith in his abilities, did choose instead to get some ground rules down on paper. This we called the compact. For it is true, we had greatly hoped the faithful Creator, whom we had honoured through a strict diet and purity of thought, plus a ban on dancing, sports, and all enjoyable activities, would have fixed for us a welcome party at the very least or made some provision for inns to entertain and refresh our weather-beaten bodies. Yet, as we set our feet upon the stable earth, it was apparent that here not a house stood, nor any hope of supply or succour. What's more, there then fell upon the godly a great calamitous storm, which claimed half the pious pilgrim's buckled top hats within a month, and after it passed, he, with great sternness, bid those of us with hats be grateful and stop moaning. And so I did, with others, include early in the compact such a clause that God's will cannot be imposed upon his subjects unless his subjects get a little something in return. Otherwise it would be seen as harassment. True, he did deliver to us a degree from all the perils and miseries of the water, but it was henceforth agreed that he had taken his eye off the ball a little too soon, and because of this, once we got settled, it would be worth everyone's while filing a class-action lawsuit. That was The Mayflower Diaries by Nick Whittle. To find out more about the author, follow him on Twitter, at Scriptogram. The Mayflower Diaries was read by Robin Volk. Follow him at Robin T. Volk. Our theme music is by Swamp Thing. Hear more at swoompthing.com. If you've missed any of our stories so far, or would like to listen again, head over to our on-demand page, 
mixcloud.com forward slash Grum Radio. The show is produced and edited by Aidan Meyer and hosted by yours truly, Philip Ellis. This has been Tall Tales. You're listening to Brum Radio. Thank you for listening to this Brum Radio podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and rate us on your podcast app.